When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. This is episode 63 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello, welcome back. It is well known that our planet is in dire straits. Greenhouse gases, shrinking ecosystems, plastic islands in the middle of the ocean, none of this is new. What is less well known is that the health of humans and the future of our species is directly related to the health of our planet. My guest this week is Dr. Stephen Hussey. He is a chiropractor and a health coach, and he just wrote a new book about why much of the Western world is suffering from chronic diseases. And here's a little hint. It has to do with the way we're treating planet Earth. Now, this episode is chock full of practical information. Before we dive right in, though, a quick note. This episode is sponsored by my new favorite children's clothing brand, Jackalow. I have two daughters, and my older daughter's clothes just weren't lasting long enough for me to pass down to my younger one until I found Jackalow. Jackalow creates play clothes for kids that are durable, adorable, and easy on the environment. Jackalow believes parents should buy fewer clothes, which speaks to my minimalism side. And they also advocate for repair and reuse by making clothes that actually last, which speaks to my environmentalist side. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I only recommend brands that I actually love and use. So if you have a child in your life, definitely check out Jackalow and support sustainability with your dollars. Even better, you can head on over to this week's show notes for a 20% off code off your purchase. You can find this week's show notes, so everything we're talking about in today's episode, plus the 20% off code to Jackalow at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 063, M-A-M-A minimalist.com forward slash 063. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Hussey, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Your new book, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, argues for a different cause to chronic disease than we've traditionally been taught, which of course is genetics. And we'll get there. But I'm wondering right off the bat, why did you write this book? Well, I guess I'll start off at the beginning. As a child, I suffered with uh, many chronic ailments, none of them that serious, but they definitely affected my childhood. So they were all 
uh, inflammatory diseases in nature. So they were like uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, used to have chronic hives, had asthma, terrible allergies, uh, and eventually ended up with uh, the autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes. And those things kind of steered me uh, in a direction uh, toward our healthcare system. Uh, and I didn't get uh, many answers, you know, from the time I was nine years old when I was diagnosed all the way up until I was about uh, 18 or 20 years old when I really started thinking for myself, found that I never really got answers to why I had these conditions. And so I guess, you know, my entire adult life, I've been looking for those answers. Why, in your opinion, are so many people sick? Right. So as I kind of mentioned there, alluded to, there's a definite mismatch between the way our physiology works uh, and the current lifestyle that we're living. Um, so if we look at things at a genetic level, uh, which is, you know, what, you know, modern medicine has attributed most chronic disease to, you have a gene for this disease, but that's just not how genes work. But if you look at it at a genetic level, it takes a very, very long time for genes to change. Uh, and that work has been done by uh, different scientists that shows that at least, at least 30 generations to change your genes. And if we look at how rapidly our lifestyles have changed, uh, especially in the last 100 years or so, but even before that, like 10,000 years ago, which sounds like a long time, but you know, in the history of time, it's not that long. Um, there's no way our genes could have caught up to these, these changes, the changes in environment, because the genes are only responding to the environment that they're in. Um, so it's, it's that mismatch is what's creating, uh, it's kind of like the symptoms of us being removed from our natural environment. The symptom of that is our chronic disease epidemic. Hmm. Are you saying that as a species, humans are kind of manipulating our environment too fast for our genes to catch up? Yes, exactly. Uh, we've become very smart. Uh, we're, we're definitely characterized by our large brains and our higher level thinking. Uh, and so we found ways to, quote unquote, make life easier. Um, but there was a bit of a trade-off with that. And we're seeing the repercussions of that now. Uh, and one of the symptoms is um, our chronic disease epidemic. And, I, you know, another one of the symptoms is, you know, that we're uh, harming the planet. Give me some specifics here. How specifically are we manipulating our environment in ways that are actually detrimental to our, our futures? Yeah. So, well, let's kind of take it back. And I'll, there's there's five things that I discuss with with clients and patients. Uh, five uh, main driving forces in why anybody would get any disease um, instead of you know there being one gene for heart disease, one gene for cancer, whatever. Uh, there's five underlying imbalances that are happening that are driving pretty much all those things. And so um, we'll take um, toxin exposure for one. Uh, so. Since 1950s, it's been estimated there's about 70,000 new chemicals that our bodies have never come in contact with pumped into our environment. And so that's having a profound effect on our health uh, because these toxins can cause all kinds of chronic diseases. They can cause dysfunction in the body, mess with all our biochemical processes and everything. But we also know that toxins are getting pumped into the environment. These same things that uh, we've created are, you know, toxifying the oceans, making it more acidic. They're, you know, getting pumped into the atmosphere uh, and, and creating all these atmosphere gases that are causing an issue. Uh, I mean, I think plastic is one of the perfect examples. Plastic is very disruptive to hormones in our body. And so our exposure to plastics um, has uh, been linked to like breast cancer. But as we know, it's also um, creating a plastic island out in the ocean. 
uh, and it's uh, killing species of animals out there and causing this massive shift in environment in the ocean as well. It sounds like what you're saying is the chronic disease epidemic, the fact that many, many humans are very sick with chronic diseases, is directly related to the health of our planet. Would that be accurate? Correct. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, I haven't done any science or crunched any numbers, but I think that if we saw an improvement in in health, especially in westernized countries that tend to be the, the sickest and have the most chronic disease, if we saw improvement in the health uh, of people, we would see an improvement in the health of the planet. Um, and that's because the things that are the choices that we would need to make to create health are the same choices, or there are things that would um, also create uh, less harm to the environment. You know, if we demand that we don't want as many toxins in our food uh, or in our cosmetics or whatever it may be, uh, those toxins don't get put in there and then they don't end up in the environment after we use them or throw them away or whatever. So that's just, you know, one example of how that could work. In your book, you give many other examples of how we are manipulating our environment to our actual detriment, one being toxins, but another being, you know, when we started domesticating our food. Can you give us some more examples? Yeah. So I guess the 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 big picture as far as agriculture of any type goes is that we've only been doing that for about 10,000 years, 12 to 10,000 years, which like I said, may seem like a long time, but if you look at the life of, of humans uh, and just life on earth in general, it's a very, very short time. Like if we were to put the entire life of humans uh, into uh, one 24-hour day, it's within the last one or two minutes of that day that we actually started farming uh, of any sort. So the problem with that is that when we look at how the world sustains itself, uh, it never... If we go into the natural world, it never, um, there's never an environment where we like the, where there's farming, where there's one, you know, crop, you walk into a forest and there's lots of different species of trees and plants and animals everywhere. That's very diverse. And so the basic, you know, nature of farming is to clear all that diversity and plant one crop or maybe, you know, five different crops or something like that, um, on that land. And, Without that diversity, things can't be kept in check. That ecosystem is way off. And so that it eventually leads to depletion of the soils. Um, and then, you know, the way we're doing it today uh, is uh, toxifying the soils because of all the chemical fertilizers and things that we have to use because the soil is so depleted and the nutrients that would make a plant grow. Um, and so uh, if we if we look at the situation that we're in, you know, we've gone from, you know, being able to farm on, you know, arable land or, or land that can um produce crops to now having to be reliant on those chemical fertilizers uh, for, for crops to even grow in the numbers that we need them to. When we switched to farming, which was a very gradual process, um, it, it allowed humans to grow in number um, and come together and form civilizations and, it, and it, uh, make advances in technology. Uh, but now we're seeing that those crops that we're relying on now are more nutrient poor and um, also very processed in nature. Uh, and that's causing a lot of issues for our health, but it's also causing a lot of issues to the land that we're farming on because we've destroyed those ecosystems. You mentioned herbicides and pesticides and chemicals on our, on our food as a result of our farming practices. However, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on GMOs, genetically modified organisms? Because 
to me, that sounds to be a very 21st century way that we are, again, manipulating the natural world. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so, and this is a big topic now, not just GMOs, but CRISPR, where we're actually uh, starting to be able to manipulate human genome, which is a little bit scary to me. I think there's always promising things with technology, but I think we should be cautious how we use them. But with genetically modified foods, uh, that's it's kind of a big experiment um, that we're doing uh, on on humans, really, on the population. Uh, when we they make it sound like a very specific process, but it's actually kind of random. They kind of shoot genes at the genetic code of a plant so that they get a desired trait. So you know, say they could sp- spray this um, this uh, chemical on it, and the plant won't die, but all the weeds around it will because they haven't been genetically modified. Um, So that's been able to increase crop yields, but it's also changing the DNA of the food we eat. And that's the DNA that we've been eating for millions of years. So, you know, if if it takes 30 generations for us to adapt to a change and we pretty much change the genes of our food overnight, uh, that's problematic. But the other thing is that it also allowed us to spray way more chemicals on that food, uh, which then we get exposed to. Uh, I think there's something really wrong with farmers uh, having to wear hazmat suits to spray their crops, yet we're the ones eating that food later on. Yeah, the picture of the serene farmer amongst his crops (laughs) really isn't the way that 21st century farming actually takes place. But I want to backtrack very slightly here. We're changing our environment at a rapid pace, and we are slow to evolve to the consequences, right? So this leads me to think as an environmentalist about climate change, and I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on how a rapidly warming planet, assuming that you believe in climate change, what are your thoughts on how a rapidly warming planet affects humans as a slowly evolving species? Well... It's funny that you mentioned this. So I, I think that we are definitely increasing greenhouse gases, but I've also seen a lot of things that show that the earth has gone through periodic um, times of, you know, warming and cooling uh, for since earth's been around. Uh, And right now we're in a warming stage and we've been here long enough or measuring it long enough that we're seeing one of those, but that does not mean that greenhouse gases are good for us. Uh, cause it's definitely changing the atmosphere that, like I said, we've evolved in for millions of years. So taking it way, way back, if we look at one of the fundamental ways that one of our cells works, um, it works, um, uh, through mitochondria. That's, you know, eighth grade biology. Everybody remembers the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. It's how we use or how we make energy in our body. Okay. So it only came about because way back, you know, primordial soup um, kind of situation, there was, the atmosphere was very um, greenhouse gas heavy. You know, it was full of methane and and hydrogen uh, and things like that, carbon dioxide. And so it was only when um, these, uh, you know, algae started to form and photosynthesize that we ended up with high amounts of oxygen or higher amounts of oxygen uh, in the atmosphere. And then from there, um, multicellular organisms could start to form and we can start to get organisms that, you know, run off of that oxygen or use that oxygen to make energy. And that's exactly what our mitochondria do. And so if we look at um, the increase in these greenhouse gases, these these carbon gases that are toxic to us, um, it's having a direct effect on our mitochondria. 
which has been linked to almost any chronic disease that you can think of, uh, is mitochondrial damage uh, or mitochondrial insufficiency. So, you know, that's, that's how far back we have to look to see the origins of our disease epidemic um, at a cellular level today. That brings me back to a point you made in the book, which really stuck with me. And please correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but you said that we shouldn't be quite so worried with the planet or the state of the planet. And we shouldn't be concerned with how we're trashing it, so to speak, because the planet will survive. It's humans as a species that due to our own actions will not survive. Am I getting that right? Correct. Yeah. And it's not just, uh, it's not just us either. Like we are dependent on the diversity of earth and all the species on it down to the bacteria up to the largest mammal we know of. All the, that diversity is what is what allows life to progress, uh, and keeps it, uh, sustained. And so, you know, I think the report last November came out from the worldwide fund for nature. Um, you know, we've lost 60% of the species on earth since 1970. And that's more of a problem to me, because that's the diversity that's maintaining life, uh, that's more of a problem than, say, uh, global warming. Um, because, again, we rely on that diversity. And, and that goes to show, too, in our microbiome. I mean, we're an ecosystem just like the world is an ecosystem. Uh, and the struggling microbiome um, is one of the main drivers of chronic disease today. So we can see that on a global scale and then down to an individual scale, the same things that are causing issues, uh, the planet are causing issues in humans or chronic disease in humans. Let's move right along into potential solutions. You make the claim that humans should be more selfish, as in we should be putting our self and our health first. Explain that. I think that we're programmed selfishly. And, you know, Richard Dawkins wrote a, you know, famous book called The Selfish Gene, and uh, he tends to take a kind of a non-emotional approach to it. But we're programmed pretty selfishly because life for a long time was about furthering your genetic code in any way possible. Uh, so you selfishly thought of how to do that. Uh, and so I think that humans have also um, evolved, you know, community and altruism and things like that as well. But, you know, we're still programmed a little bit selfish. And so I want to take that and use it for good. So I want people to think you know, about themselves a little bit. How can, how can they put their body in the best environment to create health for themselves and their family, you know, their, their genes, uh, and, and do that because not only will they be doing, uh, something good for their health, like I said, the same things that are good for us are good for the planet. So it ends up being unselfish in the end. Uh, so if we say, uh, want to reduce greenhouse grass emissions, we can do that by choosing more local food. Uh, and it turns out that, more local food is more nutrient dense. So it's better for you because nutrient density is a huge issue uh, when it comes to our health. Uh, but it also reduces the amount of carbon we have to emit to get the food to you. Uh, so that's, you know, a win-win situation right there. You say that the solution is to be selfish, but also to quote, live like our ancestors. Is living like our ancestors even possible in 2019? No, uh, short answer is no. Uh, I think that if, if 7 billion people decided to do that, we'd have a lot more problems than we had solutions. Uh, but I think that the next step is getting people to realize that within the confines of our modern society, we have to try and 
recreate that environment that was, you know, hunter gatherer, you know, uh, paleo type times, you know, all those catchwords. Um, we're not going to be able to recreate it exactly, but you know, I've seen it with clients I work with. Uh, if you change the environment, you get a better health outcome. So we have to do that. And I think that the next step is, is getting people to make more conscious decisions. Like, I don't know what to do about the situation that we're heading toward. Uh, and I can admit that I don't know, but I know what the next step is. And that is getting people to make more conscious decisions because when they do that, they'll start to change the industry. You know, if we demand organic, then more people will start doing organic. And then we can look at what's better than organic. What can we do better? But we can't do that unless more people demand it. So that's that's the next step. That's the next variable we have to change in order to see the next uh, stage of the experiment. So you bring up organic food. And I'm wondering if we're talking about tapping into our genetics and eating like our ancestors, what, in your opinion, should we be eating? I don't like to focus on the catchwords, paleo, uh, the keto, uh, you know, vegan, carnivore. Like I don't want to do those things. I want to teach people how to find nutrient dense food because that's, um, you know, all these diets and, you know, eating meat or not eating meat are all distractions from what's really the problem. And that is that our food is very nutrient poor because of the way that we're farming it, the, the majority of our food. And so if we focus on how to find nutrient density, whether it's a plant or an animal, that's going to shift. Uh, the industry. Uh, and that's what we need to see right now. We need to see that shift uh, so that we can then make the next step. So how on earth does the average overstressed, overtaxed mom or dad find nutrient-rich items in the supermarket or elsewhere? Well, there's definitely a hierarchy um, that uh, you have to learn. Um, so if you're like in the regular supermarket, uh, there's definitely going to be better options than others. Uh, sometimes, you know, for me, I've gone to the extreme and there's not much at like, say, you know, Food Lion or, or Kroger or, you know, the big, the big uh, chain supermarkets. There's not much that I really want there, uh, but they're getting better. So it tells me that we're having a shift. Uh, but I think if, like, if you're looking at the produce there, obviously organic is better. Um, haven't been too impressed with some of like the big supermarket chain organic food, because uh, I think they're shipping it from very far away. So it's not as nutrient dense and it's not as fresh. Uh, but that's obviously a better choice than conventional. You know, and people say, oh, organic still has toxins on it. Yeah, but it has, you know, with testing, significantly less toxins. And the more we vote to have organic, uh, the more that's going to encourage more people to do it. You know, if we, we can drive that, if we want to consume it, uh, the big grocery stores will get it. And so uh, it's it's looking at Again, the most nutrient dense usually means the less processed. So if you're shopping in the middle of the store where everything's packaged and stays good for a long time, that's usually not the most nutrient dense. Uh, usually that's something with very poor nutrients. So the things that would make it go bad, quote unquote, the molds and the bacteria don't even want it. So it stays good for a long period of time. Um, usually shopping like in the periphery of the grocery store where the more whole foods are, uh, and those are more nutrient dense. Um, also, you know, less packaging. So that's a little bit more sustainable, um, things like that. I would love to just quickly shift gears and cover toxins and pollutants. And you do mention in the book how it's nearly impossible. It is impossible actually to completely remove ourselves from toxins in the world. 
But I'm wondering, like, what are some common sense ways in which we can at least limit our exposure? Well, I'll, I'll go through what I go through with uh, my clients is like the five biggest areas that we're exposed to toxins. And those are food, um, probably one of the most, uh, uh, the biggest ways we get exposed to toxins because we put it directly in our body. Um, there's uh, water. So tap water is, um, has a lot of different toxins in it, depending on where you live uh, and the state of your tap water. Um, but then there's also air. So living indoors was not what we did for millions of years. And there's lots of problems with indoor air, uh, things that we put into the air, like, um, you know, all the different, um, air fresheners and things like that. They're pretty toxic, but then also things like mold and things like that. Um, then there's, um, cleaning products. Uh, so whether that's things that we clean the house with or things that we clean our body with, lots of those things are synthetic, uh, have lots of different chemicals in them, uh, chemicals that are, um, disruptive to our biochemistry. And then the last one is one I'm not so familiar with, but cosmetics. Uh, you have to look <laughs> at your skin as a big, uh, it's a big organ and it's uh, anything you put on your skin will get into your body. Uh, so we have to make sure that we're uh, using the least toxic forms of those things. And there's, there's lots of good companies uh, that will um, uh, offer you, you know, good products that have less toxins. Um, but if we go back through them, food, uh, organic is way less toxic, but also go to the farmer's market and talk to the farmer. You know, they may not be certified organic, but they may be better than organic. They just don't want to pay for the certification. Um, so talk to them and see how they grow their food. Uh, but just find the least to- or the least, um, yeah, the least toxic food you can, um, with, uh, water, uh, get a good quality filter. Um, you know, the little Brita filters, you know, get a few things, but they're not, um, good enough to get, all the toxins that can be in our tap water um, out of there. So we do some research on good water filters uh, and and uh, get those toxins out. Um, air, uh, a good quality air filter um, would be great, especially, you know, for your bedroom. You know, that's where you spend eight hours a day, hopefully. Uh, you can't really control, you know, when you leave the house and when you're at work, you can't always control that air, but at least you can control that eight hours a day. Um, and then, like I said, um, the cleaning products and the, uh, cosmetics and things you put directly on your skin, um, find companies that are, you know, at least trying to be sustainable and toxin free, uh, and support those companies. Uh, it's going to, you know, help push that movement forward, but it's also going to be better for you. Hmm. Those are all excellent strategies. So thank you for offering them. The final question I want to ask is about stress. 21st century life is extremely stressful. And I know in your book, you mentioned how a big source of stress for humans is the pursuit of money. And you argue also that stress is really wreaking havoc on our health. What are some solutions besides meditating, which we hear all the time, but what are some solutions to reducing stress in 21st century life? Yeah. So just to back up first a little bit, like, so our stress response is programmed uh, for a life-threatening event. Uh, so, you know, if we were, you know, living out in the woods uh, and something jumped out from behind a tree and tried to kill us, we would have the appropriate response. Okay. So that doesn't happen so much to us anymore um, as far as life-threatening uh, situations uh, for most people. But we're living in a world where we're constantly stimulated by smaller stresses. And that's led to an overstimulation of um, our stress response. And it's become almost 
uh, unnatural. So again, we're, we're living in a world that's very different from our evolved physiology. And so we tend to have very life-threatening responses or our body has a life-threatening response to non-life-threatening things like being stuck in traffic or losing a job or whatever it may be. Uh, those things are very stressful and they're not fun, but they're not life-threatening. And our body can sometimes have a life-threatening response. And we're also the only species that can think about that, that stressful event for the rest of the day. Most other species or all other species have the stressful event and then forget about it right after it happens. And so we keep ourselves, you know, just by thinking that it's going to happen again, keep ourselves in that stress response. And so if you think about it, if we're having that stressful response, like if your body thinks it's trying to get away from a threat, you're not thinking about things like digesting or detoxifying or reproducing or anything like that. So, uh, or sleeping, you know, so we tend to get symptoms, um, you know, just the baseline symptoms of an over um, stimulated stress responses, like things like insomnia or digestive issues uh, or reproductive issues, uh, things like that. So we have to tone down. Um, we have to nourish, I would say, the non-stress part of our nervous system. And so things that we can do to do that um, are one thing, like you said, meditating. And I think meditating for me is more like changing my perception of stress, realizing what's life-threatening and, and what's not, and um, really thinking through, like, think about the worst thing that could happen. That way you've already thought about it. And so if it happened, you're more prepared for it. But also, I think that, you know, the research is starting to show that when we go back into our natural environment, uh, we get uh, we get huge stress relieving benefits. Um, so there were studies where they looked at people in cities who spent more time in parks uh, and green spaces, what they call them, uh, and the uh, cortisol, which is your stress hormone, um, was significantly decreased, not just for the day, but for weeks afterwards. And so the irony there is that I think that if we told most people to go back and live it out in nature they would be pretty stressed uh, to, to do that. Uh, but when we do spend time in nature, uh, that, you know, something that's, uh, is perceived as safe to us, you know, like going for a hike or spending time in the park um, and just being in contact with the earth. So even like taking your shoes off and, and being barefoot um, on the earth uh, whenever you can, uh, it's extremely stress relieving. Uh, and it really stimulates the the non-stress, the vagus nerve, uh, which is part of our nervous system that's that's good for our, the parasympathetic, the non-stress state. Um, but sunlight exposure uh, is another um, way to stimulate the parasympathetic, uh, which again is is back in nature. We were outside. Um, I think that there are also some weird ways you can do it, just kind of like more like hacks, uh, you know, like uh, cold plunges and things like that, or just splashing cold water on your face for some reason. Uh, seems to uh, stimulate the vagus nerve uh, and put us in a non-stress state, uh, but also just um, community, um, being part, being around people, you know, your tribe, as Seth Godin says, um, really stimulates that parasympathetic. It puts you in a non-stress state. And I think that's uh, because for millions of years, we were in, you know, 100, 150 people communities as these hunter-gatherer type people. And we really developed a um, uh, the ability like, to look out for each other. And when we have that around us, uh, it's, it has a profound impact on our stress state. Hmm. Which is especially interesting because we are living in houses specifically cut off from our community or our tribe. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, this technology age, is, as, as much as it's connected us, it's also disconnected us. 
um, because you know that that uh, human contact, like face to face and and human touch, is it's extremely stimulating to the vagus nerve uh, and that non stress response. And so, um, lots of times we're communicating with people way more, uh, but we're not actually having that contact or developing that relationship with them, uh, which is. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a trade-off for sure, because we're definitely more productive and we get a lot more things done because of how we can communicate uh, more efficiently. Uh, but it may be having effects on our health. And the other thing is we're, it's almost like we're, we're able to do way more, but that puts us in that constant state of, of stress that we, like we have to do more. Like we're always checking emails. We're always looking for that notification for social media and that kind of stuff. Um, and that's very heightening to our, our stress state. So as much as it's, you know, diversified our, um, our community and the exposure we have to different people in different communities and things like that. It's also in ways overstimulating that stress response and keeping us in that high stress state. Hmm. We only touched on a fraction of the knowledge in your book. (laughs) So I'm wondering for listeners who are interested in learning more about you and potentially purchasing your book, where can they find it? So if they go to my website, which is resourceyourhealth.com, uh, and just go over to the resource shop, uh, it's right there. It's a, and there's a link to purchase the book. Dr. Hussey, thank you so much for coming on the show and imparting your wisdom. I really appreciate you giving your time. Thank you so much for having me. Keep up the good work. Uh, I love the podcast. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Stephen Hussey. You can find a link to purchase his book, a 20% off code to my new favorite clothing brand, Jackalo, and everything we talk about in today's episode in the show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 063. On next week's episode, I am talking with a fashion reseller who is on the show to talk about the state of thrift stores these days after Marie Kondo's groundbreaking Netflix show. I will see you then. Take care.